new birth, meaning the new spiritual birth. And we also talk about new life in Christ. Sometimes I think it might be better to think of it this way for us as the new birth that develops into new life in Christ. That it's just like you're not born and that's kind of the way it is, but there is a growth period that goes on and a development period. And James has been teaching us here in chapter 1 that we need wisdom from God. We, we have our own wisdom. Uh, we can be foolish at times, but we need, our own, we, we need wisdom from God. And he's been, let's put it this way, he's been theological about it. And now he's going to put some legs on it. He's going to put some, some feet to the ground, and he wants to make it practical. And you, you've all heard the expression, talk is cheap. And uh, it's easy to be a religious hypocrite. It's easy to be spiritually blind. Uh, but devotion to God is demonstrated in word and deed. And Christianity is about word and deed. It's not just about head knowledge, although you need head knowledge about God, and it's just not about doing things, although you know it is good to do things, but it, you, God wants us to put them together. We know things about God, and then we go out and we demonstrate them to the world. Um, to be honest, I get very confused about this. And not that I don't, I don't get confused about the word and deed ministry, what, I, what confuses me is how the church is so often so divided on this when it is so obvious in the Word of God. That's what God wants us to do. Uh, however, I would say that knowing what to do in light of the Word of God takes careful study of the Word of God. So uh, starting here in James chapter 1, verse uh, 26, uh, through chapter 4, what happens is James is going to be very specific with us on certain things. And as he talks through them, it's clear that we need the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to live these things out. Why? Why did, why did God make it that way? Well, God has designed His Word and His Spirit who comes to dwell inside someone when they turn to God and put their trust in Jesus Christ, no longer in, in themselves. So if you say to me, oh, Pastor Jim, I'm a good person, that means you're trusting in yourself. If you say, I've trusted in the life of another, I've trusted in the life of Jesus, that is faith and trust in Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, and God wants to take His Word, written in the Bible, and the power of the Spirit now dwelling in us, and he wants it to be transformational. He wants to change our lives. In other words, following God and obeying the Word of God changes us from the inside out. So last week, we left off with uh, one of the things that James told us to do was to be slow to speak. And he says here in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he is religious. Now, <laughs> all, the, all the Christian people are like, you know, the Bible geeks are like, no, I'm not religious, I'm not religious. And, and then, you know, the religious people are like, well, I think I'm religious. And so another version says, or you seem to be religious. You know, the youth group kids like it when I talk about this woman that I had in grammar school. I went to a parochial school, a Catholic school, and there was a woman, I was an altar boy, and there was a woman, and her name was, she was the librarian, her name was uh, Mildred, but everybody called her Mildew, and, and she would always say, boys, boys, stop that noise. And so, 
but Mildew, Mildred, would go to the 8 o'clock mass where I would often serve as an altar boy because my school was connected to the church so I could get out of first period, which was way cool. And, and so, uh, and she would be very holy and very devout, and then she would be madder than stepping on a hornet's nest all day long in the library. And so she was a person who, who seemed to be religious from 8 to 8.20, if you will. They were quick masses. But then the rest of the day, she really wasn't. So if any one of you thinks he's religious, seems to be religious, and does not bridle his tongue, another version says, controls your tongue, keeps a tight rein on your tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. It's worthless. Verse 27, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, some versions say distress, some say uh, affliction, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world, some versions say unstained from the world, some versions say being polluted from the world. And so the title of our message tonight is Tests of True Religion. Tests of True Religion. So James gives us Three examples. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. Don't think I get these three and I'm good. He just gives us three examples or evidences of a healthy, developing Christian life, of a new life in Christ that is making progress, that is controlled by God's wisdom, by the Word of God, and by the Holy Spirit. So the three areas are this. He says, be careful to watch over your words. Be very careful to watch over your words, and not that you're perfect, but you're, you realize you're becoming more careful as the years go by. For some of us, boy, we came quite a long way from where, the way we used to talk. Uh, number two is that you'll be helping the needy, helping the vulnerable. Number three is personal holiness, or we might call it avoiding worldliness. So these three areas where truth, the truth of God's Word, is to be put into practice by followers of Jesus. They are actions that are motivated by grace, motivated by what Jesus has done for us on the cross, and also they are, if you will, godly character is beginning and to be developed in us, and we're on a track of developing more godly character as we go along. Otherwise, um, if we're not doing these things, or these things are not evidence in our lives, they're indicator that the inward realities of our faith are not growing, or even worse, really bad, it's really serious, we're a false convert. And, and I think it's like the saddest thing in the world for someone to be a false convert. The Apostle Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, when we, when we gather on Sunday mornings, we're just completely wasting our time. You're wasting your time right now if he didn't rise from the dead. But to be gathering, to be spending all that time being a Christian, all that stuff, doing Christian stuff, and to be a false convert, to never have really trusted Christ and seeing this evidence that James is talking about is the saddest of all things. Now, James ties these three things to a very, very rare New Testament word, and it is the word religion or religious. Again, most people stay away. 
If you're, if you're a religious person, you've heard this from your uh, Bible-thumping friends. They've said this, I'm not religious, I have a relationship with God. And you're like, what in the world is this crazy guy talking about? And so people avoid those, uh, they avoid that word, and other people like to tout that word. And, and why is this? Well, typically, but not always, not here really with James, but typically religion is used uh, by the apostles to describe someone who really only exhibits the outward appearance or the outward practice of ceremonies to God. So they, so they do the outward stuff. I can remember when I was a kid, you know, I'd go in and, and you know, the, the, the priest would go into the confessional and, and he'd say, well, you know, what have you done? And you know, you know you could get out of it and go, I don't remember. Like, you don't remember what you've done. Come on now. But sometimes I would just dump the bus. I'd be like, you got an hour? And uh, I mean, just whatever. And, and he would say to me, well, you know, go say these three prayers and light a candle. And I can remember thinking, like, this seems kind of cheesy. Like, like, I totally disregard God for the last six months. And then I'm just going to quick say one little prayer that I'm not even thinking of and light a candle and, and it's going to be good. But, but that's really what most people think of religion. Not just that, but in other types of things that, that they're just doing some sort of a ceremony uh, to God. James and the other Bible writers, though, challenge our religion and they ask this. Is your religion merely outward or is it inward as well? In other words, does your religion go outward and you're kind of hoping it might go inward, or is it inward and it's going outward? Is it manifesting itself in the way you live for Jesus Christ? Uh, the inward um, is not expressed in the outward when we're just talking about just religion that is useless. That's what he calls here, religion is useless. So, so if there's no inward pushing the outward, he says that kind of, James says it right here, that, that one's religion is useless or worthless. So the first area is speech. The first area is speech. And he says here, our tongues must be bridled. What was the, You're like, what in the world does that mean? If you might not know what that is. Well, a lot of you know that I grew up across the street from horse stables. And, and so uh, that would mean when the wind would blow in a certain direction, I would know it's time to wake up. <laughs> but, but so I grew up across the street from uh, horse stables. My, actually, my, the kid I grew up across the street from won the uh, gold medal in the World Cup in polo. And uh, so he's, he's quite a rider. And, um, and so, I, you know, they did teach me how to ride over there. But um, one of the interesting things, probably one of my favorite things, was when the horses woke up in the morning and they would let them out of the barn, and they would just run crazy. I mean, they would be out of control, jumping, because you know, they'd be in those stalls all night, which are relatively small for such a large animal, and they would be jumping around, running crazy, galloping all over the place, jumping over stuff, you know, just completely out of control. It was wild, and it was disorganized, until one of the people would come out, and they would put a bridle on them. You said, what in the world is a bridle? That would be the headgear that they would put over their head. And then there would be this steel thing. It's called a bit that they would put in their mouth. And it would have the reins attached to it. And that would enable them, when they would get on the horse, you see them pull to the right or pull to the left or pull back to get the horse to stop. That would enable them to control the horse. 
Here, James says that the tongues of some self-proclaimed religious people are like uncontrollable horses. They're like the horses that come out of the barn first thing in the morning, running out all kinds of crazy. There's no restraint. So what are they like? Well, they're often hypercritical of the character of others. They're often very, very dishonest. They're often caustic and toxic people. Uh, I would also say that they're typically known for being unable to hold a confidence. That's why we say in our community groups, what's said in the group stays in the group. Why? Because we want to bridle people's tongues. We don't want them going out telling other people's business. Uh, perhaps more than anything else, uh, people who are unbridled are, are chronic liars, saying whatever they need to do to make themselves look good or to keep themselves out of trouble. Psalm 34, 13, David said this, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Or some versions say from telling lies. Jesus himself said this, For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. So what, what is it? Our words betray what's going on in our heart. Now, why, uh, James says uh, that they're not, not only uh, are they religious hypocrites, right, but they're actors. They're, they're liars. That's what hypocrites are. But he also says they deceive his own heart. In other words, they think they're the real deal. They really do. I'm very religious. Look at me. I'm very religious. And, and they think that they're the real deal, but they're not. And when we get to chapter 3, we're going to find out it was characteristic of a lot of the people that were purporting themselves to be Bible teachers, to be Sunday school teachers, to be you know, teaching the kids or, or teaching these people or, or taking people out to lunch and offering them uh, you know, counsel or something like that. Their religion had no power over their unethical behavior and they were not because they were not allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their hearts. Despite what they say, they are not following Jesus. They might say that they are, but they're not. And in reality, they are not helping the work of the kingdom. They are destructive to the work of the kingdom. Now, the, the effects of this is very far-reaching. Such people can hurt a lot of people. And, and it ultimately, it will also destroy the, the soul of the unrestrained person. Now, here's an area for us. We were thinking like, well, that was a long time ago. Let us not be deceived. In addition to verbal words, we now have the added temptation of being unrestrained because of technology. Technology has put us at great risk for this. So you may not, it might not be your unrestrained tongue that's your mouth. It may be your unrestrained fingers or your fingers that are sending out these caustic words. Now, let's be clear on one thing before you think, okay, I'm just going to shut up. We are, not clear, we are not called to a silenced tongue, but to a bridled tongue. We must proclaim the gospel. 
Now let's go back to verse 27 as James brings us to helping the needy. He says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father. Interesting, he says the Father in this verse is this. Um, we might say uh, real religion is seen. Here's an example of the way it's seen. To visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Let's just stop there for one second. Once again, uh, James is not saying this is all true religion is. Uh, what he is against is religion that has no legs to it. Religion that has no real demonstration of, of faith uh, acted out. If we say we love God, that love of God and for God, he is saying to us, expresses itself outwardly and practically in the love of others. Now, remember we said before that in, when we're reading the letters of the apostles, they don't tell us what the problem is because they're mainly writing in reactions to a lot of the problems. So we kind of have to figure out what's going on, what the apostles are addressing in their letters. And here, it seems to be, he's saying, you have to help the vulnerable when they're in trouble. You have to help them when they are, some versions use the word distress, when they're in their distress. Now, this is messy. This is messy ministry. And this is what a lot of people do in America. They go, yeah, I want to help. Let me give you my church's number. That's not helping. That's not helping. Sometimes people come to me and they go, Pastor Jim, I want you to come to meet my friend at work because I'm trying to tell him about Jesus and I want you to come talk to him. And I always go, God gave him to you, not to me. And so the same thing, when God puts you in that position, sometimes he's going to ask you to get involved in the messiness, to roll up your sleeves and to, and to get involved in it. And here James teaching us, is teaching us to have the heart of a father. Have the heart of a father towards his children. Galatians 5.6 says this, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision, let's just call that religion, nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Faith is expressed through love towards other people. Now, in the ancient world, uh, why this is a great example, uh, widows and orphans were, were basically helpless to provide for themselves. They had none of the social programs that we have in the modern world. They, they just didn't. And so God commanded his people. When you have people like this living amongst you, you are to help them and not take advantage of them, which is one of the most despicable practices known to man. Nor, when we're helping them, are we to look for anything in return. We, we, just, we just help them. The only thing I would say we, we hope for is that they will become followers of Jesus and walk in the newness of life. For the church, what is it? Now, listen, some people are gaming the church. We know that. They come in, and they're kind of gaming the system, you know, or they call up the church, and they go, aren't churches supposed to help people? And we go, yes, the people who need help. You sound like you're gaming the system. So we got to be very, very careful about that. Be very, very careful about that. But for the church, it really comes down to is we help people with things that they can't help themselves with. And I love to hear these stories. That happens in our church very regularly. 
that somebody comes to me and says, oh, you know, I moved and these guys helped me or you know, a tree fell in my yard or, you know, I need somebody to come over and trim my bushes or something like that. All kinds of these things that go on or, or you know, oh, I was sick and these people brought me meals. And I'm just like, wow, that's great. And I'm hearing about it after the fact. I'm not like, oh, you can't help. We have to tell you what to do. We can't. I'm not like that at all. I'm, I'm so excited that they are obeying the word of the Lord. But again, let's be very careful. We've talked about this already, about getting in the way of God's discipline with certain people, especially with money. Be very, very careful about giving people money. You say, well, what, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? Well, let's say somebody comes to, the, comes to the church and they have a power bill and it says we're turning off your electricity on this day. Well, a lot of times we call the power company and we explain that we're from a church and a lot of times they will be willing to work with it. And they'll say, well, we need to get some sort of a down payment. And let's say we decide to help them out with that. Who do you think we make the check out to? We make it out to the power company. And we mail it to the power company with a note. And we follow up with them to make sure that they got the payment. You see, that's very different than just handing somebody some cash. Because you don't know what they're going to, you're going to do with it. And so chapter 1 ends with the, the end of verse 27. It says, And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Some versions say unstained. Another version says from being polluted by the world. What is this? This is a call to personal holiness. This is a call to avoid what we call worldliness. And, and here, the term world, it has varying views in the scripture. It really has to do with the system of evil that is opposed to God. So James is saying you need to avoid that. Um, it's also a word used to describe ungodly worldviews, ungodly lifestyles. We could say that worldliness, as it's used here, or, or the things of the world, is life apart from God. And he's saying, make sure that you avoid that. That's true religion. You're not, you're not letting the world infect you with everything that it says that you need to do and you need to be and how you need to, to think. And so if you pair that with taking care of the vulnerable, we have an interesting but sad situation, I think, going on in the church in America right now. We have a church that's very, very focused on helping the vulnerable. Very, very focused on helping the needy. Amen. I think it's a wonderful thing. It's a great thing. It's a great thing. However, in the process, we've lost morality. It's like morality doesn't seem to really matter. We need to help people. And this is one of those things that goes in cycles. It's like a pendulum that, that, that swings. Because years gone by, it was all about morality. And we weren't really helping people. And so it is right, word and deed ministry. It is living for God. It is helping the vulnerable. It is also being able to you know, keep yourself being unspotted from the world um, being unstained, not being uh, polluted. And so Christianity right now is it's sort of in an interesting spot. See, James is teaching us that it's important we see evil and do what we need to do to avoid evil, to stay away from evil, to stay close to the Lord and to do the work of the Lord. Now you might say, 
does this mean we need to run from people and culture? No, not necessarily. Jesus didn't. Jesus was a friend of sinners. That's why I love him so much. Right? He's a friend of sinners. People said he sat with sinners and tax collectors. He loved those people, and those people loved him. So what does that tell you about him? That he was like normal. Like he just could talk to them, and yet there was something different about him. He didn't, he, he didn't have to live a lot of the you know, lives that they lived, but yet he, he could still understand them. So what does it mean? It means that he wants us to live in the world. The scripture says we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're staying away from the things that the evil of the world wants to drag us into. Now, it's very interesting when I say, should we avoid people? Should we avoid the culture? Uh, one of the marks of a religious cult, religious cult, is they desire to pull you away from people. A lot of times they'll say, oh, they're evil. They're really influencing you for evil. Even, and sometimes especially, they'll pull you away from your own family members. But true Christianity teaches us that holy, the holiness of God is given to us through the power of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. And yes, you can stand true. And yes, you can stand faithful. However, we can't be naive. There are, there are many things in American life that are designed to pull us away from God and we'll see more of that as we go into chapter 2, 3, and 4. Jesus said this, Matthew 5, 14, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. So we are God's people to bring purity to the world, but we also need to be careful because it would be very easy to get sucked in to what the world is offering us. Well, in chapter 2, we, we move from the religion of chapter 1, and James now moves us to how faith in Christ changes our hearts and our lives. And this is going to be a long section, really. We're only going to cover some of it tonight, but uh, first seven verses. But this is going to be an ongoing way of thinking in James. Again, how faith in Jesus Christ changes our hearts and our lives. In other words, instead of like religion from the outside, hoping it gets inside, faith in Jesus Christ is on the inside and then becomes externalized. And, and so uh, like religious activity, right, um, it, it has an opposite effect. Faith in Jesus is your hope. Instead of hoping it comes inside, you know that when Jesus is inside of you and you start to live it out, that he is inside of you. Now, it, it's interesting um, he moves from external religion to the ways, or let's call it the sinful ways, we view people externally. Very interesting. We're, so we're watching religious people and we're going, ah, that's just religion, man. That, uh, that, I want no part of that. Get away from me. Get, I don't want no part of that. And then he says over here, but you're looking at other people you're judging the external religious person, and then you're judging other people by their appearance externally, and you think you know what's going on inside of them. So he's going to talk about partiality. It's not a word we use very much. It's, uh, some versions use the word favoritism. So I'll probably be talking more about favoritism, but it is partiality in the version we're using. And, and he's going to talk about how favoritism 
is not consistent with faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, to, to judge on mere appearances is not consistent. If you saw Jesus, the, Isaiah wrote, there is nothing about him that we should be drawn to him. Like you would see Jesus and you would be like, I know that the pictures, he looks like a handsome Irish guy, you know, and, you know, my wife always says to me, yeah, why do you always say that? Because you're a handsome Irish guy. Well, I'm glad she thinks so. But, but, but you know, he, he's just a normal looking guy. He's probably short. People over there, people years ago, 2,000 years ago, were shorter, darker skinned, you know, had a beard, walked around in a robe and sandals. Some of you are like, oh, I like the outfit, man. And, and so you, you wouldn't have been like, wow, there he is. I mean, there, you, know, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judah said, I'll, I'll identify him with a kiss. He didn't go, he's the tall, good-looking Irish guy. You'll see, you'll see him when he gets there. He doesn't say any of that. And so he doesn't want us to, God doesn't want us to look at uh, the exterior. In the Old Testament, uh, long before Jesus came along, remember we said James was heavily influenced by the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus, not the teachings of the Apostle Paul. They hadn't come along yet. Leviticus 19.15 says this, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty, or honor the people who are rich. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Job 34.19, Elihu is proclaiming God's justice, and he says this, Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. We go move to the New Testament. Jesus says this, John 7, 24. Do not judge according to appearances, but judge, so we are to judge, with righteous judgment. So we're not going to look at something and just go, well, that must be the case. We have to judge with a righteous judgment. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, Peter actually ends up explaining this all to Cornelius because Peter had to be shown it by God. Now, before we have to move on, before we move on, it's important to see that our culture right now is really struggling with this. And I think more than ever, they say right now we are probably one of the more biblically illiterate churches that America has seen in quite a while. That's really bad. And I'll tell you why that's really bad. I think right now the issues are so, can I use a California word? They're so gnarly. <laughs> the, 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 really, the issues are so entangled. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that right now because there's two California guys sitting in the sound booth. Three. Okay, three. All right. I lived there for a few months. <laughs> it was too gnarly for me. But anyway, and so it was rad, though. <laughs> All right, back to the Bible study. Back to the, they're all laughing now. They're not paying attention to anything. So, um, so where were we? Oh, we're in a Bible study here. That's where we are. Okay, so the, the issues right now in our society are so intense and so intermingled with stuff that might seem inconsistent with the Bible that we have to know our Bibles now better than we ever had to before. So that's why I am so very thankful that you're listening to not only a Sunday message, but you're listening to a Wednesday message, because you're going to need this kind of stuff, and you're going to need to know this stuff, and you say, well, I, can't, I don't remember it very well. When you need it, God will pull it out of you. That's the way God is. It's not like you, what you put in, he pulls out. You don't put it in, probably not going to pull it out. 
And so we need to know our Bible. So let's go over the following things that are wrong. Wrong. Racism is wrong. Sexism is wrong. Not helping the vulnerable is wrong. Judging people by the way they look is wrong. Not protecting the vulnerable is wrong, including the unborn, the unhealthy, and the elderly. Sometimes, as Christians, and if you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here with us today. You can hear me beat up on all of us. I'm beating, I'm looking at myself too at the same time. So sometimes we're so focused on an issue or the issues that we forget about equal rights. And we forget about showing the love of Christ to people. I was talking to someone recently. They don't, didn't really know where I would stand on this issue. And, and they said to me, um, to be a follower of Jesus, don't you need to hate gays? And I was like, where in the world did you ever get that idea? Why, why, why would you think that? Well, do you think they should have equal rights? And I said, well, I think everybody should have equal rights. But, but that is their taste of certain people. Um, not to mention, we have to deal with the fact that, that Americans and and largely even suburban Christians have really turned a blind eye to the oppressed. You know, we, we've, we've turned a blind eye to the fact that, that the, the violence in some of our inner cities is just absolutely horrible. And, and, and you know, election day is coming. Vote for the people that want to change that, please. Or, or we forget that, that some of us in, in the suburbs, we are really, really, really well-educated. I mean, really, compared to some of the people in our inner cities. Uh, when I owned my trucking company, I had a lot of those guys as workers, and great men, great men. High school diplomas couldn't read, could barely write. And so, so we have to be a little bit more in tune with, with some of the issues and understand that, that in, in God's mind, and we say this all the time, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. I don't care who you are, what you have, we, we all need a Savior. And some of these people that are, are suffering through so many various injustices are our brothers and sisters, and so he says here in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the interesting term, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He says, listen, don't show favoritism. So it seems like favoritism or discrimination was a problem in the churches that James is writing to. And what's he saying? Essentially he's saying this, listen, listen, faith in Jesus and favoritism, faith in Jesus and discrimination. 
They don't compute. They don't work. You you can't say you're a follower of Jesus and, and that stuff's a part of your life. James is clear. Practicing favoritism is inconsistent with one's profession of faith and it is inconsistent with the way Jesus Christ is. We might say, don't think, we just said it, let's say it again, don't think that you can combine faith and favoritism. You, you, you can't do it. The two don't mix with the Lord of glory. Now, some versions, instead of saying the Lord of glory, say the glorious Lord Jesus. In other words, there, th- these people, it's not an easy verse to translate, is saying that, that Jesus is the splendor and the presence of God. And if you want to walk in the splendor and the presence, in the Shekinah glory of God, these other kinds of things, they got to be sucked out of your life. They're not right at all. Either way, we must be careful not to give glory to men and women that is reserved for our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus. So, so we're not to have favoritism, not to show partiality. I would, I would love to say this is not a problem in the American church, but it is. And once again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something that I probably don't, you know, when this stuff goes out on the radio, I'm going to get emails from pastors, as I have many times before, for picking on my own kind. But when it comes to partiality and favoritism, it's particularly bad among pastors. It really is. Many a pastor is too quick to be blessed by the rich person in their congregation. And, and now listen, you say, well, why do rich people want to do that? I think a lot of them are extremely well-intentioned. I will, not, I will not call into the motivations of anyone until they show their true colors. But others are not. They're not well-intentioned. Either way, to think or to allow people influence in the church because of their wealth, or to be impressed by what God is not impressed by is very unwise. Sadly, it's human nature to favor those we serve to profit from the most. And uh, I remember when I first went into the, into the ministry, I would talk about you know, people I would meet at Starbucks. And all of a sudden, I started getting all these Starbucks gift cards. People would be dropping them off at the, at the info table, the connection table, and they'd be like, hey, give this to Pastor Jim or in the mail. Give this to Pastor Jim. And I would have, I'd be like, you know, Kramer on Seinfeld, oh, I had too much caffeine. And so, and, and I, would, I would be getting all these gift cards. And, and so uh, I went to my f- good friend and a pastor who was mentoring me at the time, Pastor Tom Dickerson, and I said, you know, Tom, um, <laughs> I, I probably shouldn't be talking about Starbucks because I keep getting all these gift cards. He's like, oh, they're blessing you. That's great. I'm like, well, well, where do you draw the line? Suppose somebody wanted to give me a Ferrari. And he goes, Jim, keep the gift card, drink the coffee, and give back the Ferrari. So really, that's a, you know, very, very simple, very simple. I was like, I was, I was making too much out of it. But, but we have to be very, very careful of such things. Uh, when I was in the business world and I owned my company, um, uh, Hewlett Packard was a very good client of mine. 
And we would have to go on these periodic lunch meetings together with them, and they would discuss the, they kept data on everything. Well, they're a computer company. So they keep the data on everything. And they had a policy. When they took a vendor out to lunch, they paid. And normally in business world, when, you're the, when, you're the, when it's your customer, you pay. But that, they wouldn't allow that because they didn't want there to be any kind of influence or impropriety at all. We didn't go to super expensive places. We went to nice places, though, but, but they always paid. And so taking a page out of that book, when any of the pastors in our church take someone in the congregation out to lunch and they put in for a reimbursement for it. Now, listen, if, they, if they're, you know, having lobster and all, all, all kinds of every week, that's a little different story. But, you know, they just go to the diner, they go to, to a sub shop or something like that. They have you know, Panera or something like that. They have lunch with someone, then they put in for a reimbursement for it. I sign off on it right away. So I, I, I don't want people to think that they're going to have some sort of an influence over a pastor because they took them out to lunch. Now, sometimes people insist on paying. Usually what I say is, okay, but the next one's on me. And then I make sure that, the, that I do follow up with them and I try to make the next one on me. I just got myself 20 lunch uh, inv invites. So anyway, verse 2. Uh, James gives us a practical illustration of what I was just talking of. He says, For if there should come into your assembly, now uh, some verses say meeting, uh, scholars debate, is it a church court proceeding or is it a worship service? Uh, if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings, I got a gold ring, so maybe you're talking about me, and in fine apparel, no, that's not me, okay? So he's got a gold rings and in fine apparel, what does it mean? Cha-ching, he's got money. And there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes. Some versions say shabby old clothes. Now for us, it might not be that. Uh, it might be the car that the guy drives in. Oh, that's the guy who came in in the, you know, that car, that car, something like that. So so it could be any, any number of things. It could be, you know, people trying to, you know, let you know all the different degrees they have or whatever. You know, there's nothing wrong with us discussing that stuff. But, but, but you know, someone who comes in and, and, they're, and they're, they're shabby versus someone who is looking very good. And verse 3, And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes, and you say to him, You sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand over here or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality? Another version says, have you not discriminated among yourselves? And we're supposed to go, yeah, we have. And become judges with evil thoughts. And we're supposed to go, yeah, we have. So two men walk into an assembly. One is wearing expensive clothes clearly rich, clearly successful. The other man walks in with shabby clothes. Perhaps it's his only outfit. Maybe he's dirty. Maybe he's smelly. Maybe he is homeless. Now, this has happened many times over the years in our church. Many, many times. So, what do you do if you're a greeter? What do you do if you're an usher? I don't know, I'm asking you. What do you do? I'm, I'm the preacher. I'm just standing up there, right? What do you do? 
What do you do? If you're a parent and you're sitting with your kids and, 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 and the fellow comes and sits next to you and, you know, his clothes smell and he looks like he's homeless, and what do you, what do you, what do you say to your kids? How do you react? What does the Lord say to do? Do you, do you shy away or do you use it as a teachable moment for your kids? Are they believers? We don't know. Are they guests? We're not told. James says that some will escort the rich or the nice-looking family to the good seats. However, the ushers are suspicious of the other man. You just stand right here. Or you just sit right here where I can keep an eye on you. Now, they might not say that, but perhaps they're, that's what they're thinking. Some might ask, well, why are they here? So, so the reality is, you and I have no idea why they're here. None. You, you say, well, what are their intentions? Are they good or are they bad? You have no idea. You know, they said that years ago in the Bible Belt, people, uh, you know, we typically ask people up here, we're like, so what do you do for a living or where do you live or something like that? Down in the Bible Belt, they say, where do you go to church? It's changing now because a lot of people went to church just because if you didn't go to church, you could never get elected to public office. You could never get certain business deals. You could never get certain things through the, the town planning board or something like that. But what do we think? I, I, I remember one time a guy came to our church here, and, and he was a homeless guy, and, and we talked for a while, and uh, he'd, been in the, he'd been in the war, and uh, he was just really having a tough time coping with reality. I got to tell you something. That guy had more Bible memorized than probably any 25 people I would put together. It was staggering. I said to him, man, do you have like a photographic memory or something like that? No, he goes, I was raised in the church, man, and my mama, man, my grandma. <laughs> and memorizing, memorizing, you know, at least one verse every week, 52 weeks a year, 15 years. That's a lot of Bible verses. That's a lot of Bible verses. Then in verse 4, James says, what have you done? Whether you did it in thought or you did it in deed, You've judged them. And he's very serious about this because what does favoritism towards people do? It claims God's right to judge people. It's God's right to judge people. That's not our right. Now, will their actions eventually bring us to a judgment about their behavior? Good chance that will happen. But here, a congregation, whether in word, action, or thought, are called out on their attitudes. And James' point is simple. Favoritism is unchristian. Got it? That's simple. James is blunt. Favoritism is unchristian. Assigning the world's worth to people is sinful. And assigning the, the world's worth to people and equating that with their value to the kingdom of God is sinful. 
Favoritism ends up judging one person's soul as more valuable than another. And that is sinful. Now, this is a challenge. If you're a boss at your job, you know this is a challenge, what I'm about to say. If you're a ministry leader, you know this is a challenge, what I'm about to say. As a pastor, this is a massive, massive challenge that I face every single day is trying not to play favorites. Yet on the other hand, you know that you have to dedicate more time to more people because they are people who are helping push the ministry forward. They are help, helping people that are multiplying ministry. So it's a very, very difficult place to be. Now, let's just say one other thing. You're sitting in church, and you don't want to play favorites. And you're there you are in your cherished end seat, which I always make fun of the people who sit on the end. And an elderly person comes along. Get up and let them have your seat. That's not playing favorites. That's showing honor. That's showing respect. Someone who has trouble moving about. Give them your seat. Let them sit where it's easy for them. That's the godly thing to do. Verse 5, he says, listen, my beloved brethren. Now, most of the people in their churches were poor. Remember, we said at the beginning in our first lesson in James, they were the people that were dispersed, probably because of persecution in Jerusalem and poverty in Jerusalem. Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? And we're supposed to go, yes. James tells his readers, listen up. You know that God has chosen for his kingdom many people who are poor in the eyes of the world. He's chosen many people like that to be followers of Jesus. Paul told the Corinthians the same thing, that not many wise, not many noble have been chosen for the kingdom of God. The conversion of poor people shows us their value to God and the love and respect that a follower of Jesus should show them. Now, there's a very popular theology called liberation theology. Liberation theology likes to think that, likes to teach that only the poor are saved. Well, if that's the case, then we should hope that everybody's poor. We should hope that everybody would remain poor. And yet, liberation theology also wants to liberate you from being poor. You're like, it sounds like it's kooky. It's kooky. It's uh, worth, worth noting, uh, while Christianity seems to be dying in the West, in some places it's plateauing or in decline, it's flourishing in the poorer parts of the world. And we need to pray that, that good teaching gets out there. It's important to note that poor in the Word of God is just not related to money. There's also the, the spiritually poor. And, and to be spiritually poor, then to be made spiritually rich, is to respond to the call of God. It's very interesting when you, when you think of, of just physical poverty and spiritual poverty and you put them together. It's, it's like 
it's, in a sense, God uses earthly poverty as a visual for us. You know, you see those pictures of, like, whenever I see those pictures of India and, and the way some of those people live, I'm just like, this is so horrible, the way some of them live. But then in reality, that's how we are before God. And so God gives us this visual picture of how, we, how poor we are before him. And we get this picture of, of the promise of new life in Christ for those who put their trust in him, that Jesus delights in a rags-to-riches story. That Jesus delights from someone going from being spiritually poor to being a son and daughter of the king. Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because it requires humility. And most people with money are very self-sufficient, very self-reliant. Often what changes in their life is, is an Acts 9 conversion. Like Jesus knocking the Apostle Paul down off, your will, off his high horse. And sometimes people that, that have assets, that have money, that, that are very confident, very self-assured, they get knocked off their high horse. And you know what? That's okay. Let them be knocked off. Don't intervene. Don't help. Pray, pray, pray that God uses that to bring them into the kingdom so they see that they're really not as self-sufficient as they thought they were, that they're really much more fragile than they thought they were, that they're much more poor and spiritually poverty-stricken than they ever thought that they were. Poor is also used in the Bible as an evaluation of the world that rejects followers of Jesus, those people who, who, make, who mock out Jesus' friends, uh, mock out Jesus' God's children, they mock the people who God loves to shower with grace and mercy. The result of people who put their trust in Jesus, it makes them rich in faith, he says here in verse 5. Heirs of the kingdom who love God, and they will continue to do so. Once again, we see God's sovereignty and human responsibility in the same place. They're not opposites, they work together. What's God's sovereignty? God saves. God chose them. He said it right here. God chose them. God saves. And yet, our responsibility, we have to have faith and trust, and we have to love God for saving us. Verse 6 and 7, But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Probably that stuff was going on. A lot of times settling debts and stuff like that. We're supposed to go, yes. Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called or to whom you belong? And I guess we're supposed to say yes. So while God honors the poor, he says, hey, you church people, you're dishonoring them. But when you dishonor them, you also dishonor God. Remember, Jesus was poor. You dishonor God's kids. And, and you ask any parent. I mean, <laughs> I remember some kid would, would, would pick on my kids, and my wife would go, I got a mind to go 
bop that kid in the face and, and, and deck him. And I'd be like, honey, he's five. You can't do that. <laughs> but that's the way parents get. Somebody picks on your kid and you are just, you're just beside yourself. There was a, there was a story uh, that my brother was, was being picked on by one of the neighborhood bullies who was his age. And so, um, the, you know, actually was actually a little bit older than him in between my and his age. And, and so he was the neighborhood bully and there was a crowd of people and, and my brother was out there and he was going to work on my brother. And I went there and I just hauled off and just wailed the guy and gave him a bloody nose and he went down. And then his brother came. And his brother was like the, the bully of the neighborhood. And I explained to him what happened, said my prayers, called the priest for last rites, and he grabbed his brother by the hair and dragged him home. Well, a little while later, there's a knock at the door, and it's the mother and father. And they go, do you know what your oldest son did to our son? Look at him. And they showed him that his face, kind of his nose was kind of on the side of his face after I punched him and stuff like that. And my father was like, well, thank you for bringing this to my attention. He didn't tell me about it. I'm going to deal with, I'll deal with my son. And he will never forget this day. And they said, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So my father pulled me into the room. I thought it was going to have fellowship time with his belt, which was often the way uh, my dad used to tell me he was not happy with me. And my dad said this to me, was that bully picking on your brother? And I said, yes. And he said, and did you go there knowing that you were going to punch in the face the little brother of the biggest bully in the entire neighborhood? And I said, yes. And you know what he said? That's my boy. <laughs> he was proud of me. He was proud of me. You see, God wants us to honor his kids. God wants us to stick up for his kids. Should we be kind to the rich? Absolutely. But not favor them. Again, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Some of the rich people were even taking advantage of the poor people, taking them to court even harming the church. James is not teaching us to resent them. He is saying, don't exalt them. Preach the gospel to those who blaspheme. Who do they blaspheme? It says, that noble name by which you are called. Other versions say, that noble name to which you belong. Who would that be? That would be Jesus. Jesus loved us and died on the cross for us and calls us all to turn to him and put our trust in him and he will rescue us from being orphans. He will give the orphans a family and he will invite us into a kingdom and we will no longer be poor. James had experienced that and James wants us to experience that too, that we are the dirty person walking into the assembly. And Jesus says, come, come, sit right here with me. Sit at my table because I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to wash away your sins. I'm going to clothe you in my righteousness and you will be my son and my daughter forever. Simply put your faith and your trust in me. Well, let's pray.